Welcome to Four Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with a return guest, Jordan Graft, President of Triumph Pay. Jordan, how are you? I'm good, man. I, I feel lucky to be a, a comeback, a return return guest. I don't I don't think you have many of those, man. What what do I owe the honor? Well, you, we don't have a lot of return folks, but similar to Saturday Night Live, our most popular guests get to come back. Well, that's that, that's surprising to me to know that I was a popular guest. Well, Jordan, let's get an update on the business. Uh, Triumph Pay. You know, you are effectively a startup inside of a large company, so you benefit both with having infrastructure. You've got the bank uh, that is obviously very supportive, and you're an entrepreneur, and you've created this uh, upstart business that does payments for uh, the 3PL industry and the logistics space. What What is the update right now? We had a, a great quarter. Coronavirus actually, um, and the lockdowns, actually kind of helped us out in a, in a lot of ways, gave people time to slow down and, and focus. And, you know, the trend of outsourcing back office functions really picked up around that. So, you know, we just announced Redwood Logistics um, joined Triumph Pay. Very excited. That's a, a well-known, you know, top 20 broker, great reputation in the Jaeger family uh, that we're excited to have on the platform. And, you know, that makes the fourth of the top 20 brokers that are on the platform. And going into the rest of the year, we expect to add another three. Um, out of the top 20. So we, you know, we're, our growth, um, you know, we've been blessed to just be able to build that trust within the the top three PLs in the space. And, you know, taking that momentum into, into 2021, we're, we're also getting some lift from the shipper side of things um, through our partnership with Intelligent Audit. You know, some shippers like McKesson, Medtronic, Bass Pro, Staples, like we've been able to, to win some, get some wins there. So, it's really been growth on all fronts. Um, you know, we're going to be at about six to seven billion of run rate payment volume by the end of the month. Heading into the end of the year, we want want to be closer to nine billion. So, it's it's been a great year. Now, a couple of the companies that are in payments that intersect transportation, logistics, bill payment, and payment of carriers have actually raised quite a bit of money, venture capital. Um, talk a little bit about what you're hearing in the space as it relates to VCs, why they would be interested in this space. Yeah, we get we obviously get a lot of uh, inbound interest from venture capital and private equity firms. But as a publicly traded entity or a subsidiary of a publicly traded entity, you know, we benefit from having a very large capital base. It's very patient. Um, the public shareholders that are in our stock know the story and, and have been in it. And, you know, that's not really a path we go down. I think as you compare you know, payment processors or money transmitters, you're looking for someone that can provide stability and security. And being a subsidiary of a publicly traded bank, we can offer that in, in a lot more ways than you could someone that just raised 20, 30 million of VC money. That's that's pretty hot money looking to get a good, you know, quick return. We're able to, to be more patient and, you know, provide more security with our balance sheet and, and the amount of assets that we have in the space. Yeah, you guys would be larger than actually the companies that have recently raised, from what I understand, doing some channel checks um, in terms of the volume. One of those actually raised at a $300 million, or reportedly, I should say, the whisper number on the street was a $300 million valuation. Um, I mean, being a part of a bank, you're not getting the level of lift. Triumph Pay has not brought a, a ton of lift to the stock just yet. What What is that like being a part of an institution where uh, how people evaluate the performance of the overall business is, is heavily tied into the bank assets? Yeah, he's, he's talking about being a whisperer is one of the worst kept secrets in uh, transportation payments, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not in it for a quick lift. We're not in it to 
to just get a quick bump in, in, in the stock price of what we're doing. We're in it to build long-term value for all our stakeholders. And that means sometimes taking a slower approach and, you know, being patient enough to let shareholders get their head around the story in the public markets. you got to convince, you know, a lot of people versus in the private markets you're working with maybe one or two institutional investors. So, you know, it just takes longer for, for people to get their heads around the story and what's happening. But it's 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 begun and, and you know, we're getting more access to, um, you know, more access to fintech type investors. And, and just really, again, back to what we're trying to be, we're not trying to be an overnight story, overnight success. We want to come in, build long-term value, build long-term relationships with some, you know, large companies like Schneider and Trinity and Transplace. Like we want to be stable for them. We want them to not think that we're just going to flip it as soon as we get some, you know, hot offer come in from, an unknown private equity source. We really want to present that stability. And I think that's that's benefits us being a, a publicly traded bank. Now, not every venture capital company has that plan. Some of them have much more ambitious plans uh, to, to see where it ends up. But there's a really interesting intersection between payments and freight. And you know, in terms of disclosure, I, I had a payments company in my past life. And now I have a freight media company, and so I sort of, I always love the story of those two businesses coming together. FinTech has been hot for the last, you know, two decades. Uh, it's certainly gotten hotter in, in recent uh, years. And freight is, we're sort of the early cycles of that, and it's sort of interesting to see these two businesses uh, sort of grow. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunity for optimizing payments. I mean, it was the reason that you set out to start Triumph Pay was to really accelerate the cash flow of the companies that are in the space and really mitigate a lot of the transaction costs associated with it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, when Triumph and, and Steve Hausman, when they, when they came up with this idea, I think they, I think, you know, when we originally, you know, when this was originally started, it, it, it was just scratching the surface of what the potential um, can be, you know, and there's so much friction in broker freight payments. Um, you have upwards of 50% of invoices are different than the amount they were contracted for because of accessorials or changes and, um, you know, whatever it may be. There, there's just a lot of friction in this market. I think that's why you haven't seen large payment uh, payment processors show up here like Stripe or Braintree. Another reason those guys don't show up in our space is because the vendor base is what's fragmented. You know, you've got 100,000 trucking companies or 150,000 carriers working for, you know, 8,000, 9,000 brokers, 1,000 of which are the top, you know, represent 90% of the volume. And, and, and you've just got such fragmentation in that space that, you know, what's what's arisen there instead of Visa and MasterCard, you've got these 300 or so factoring companies standing in between those two entities. And it's just a really inefficient business model. So, you know, in addition to broker freight being highly frictional uh, in terms of different payments and the amount of the, the invoice changing so much, you've now introduced a lot of third parties into the into the transaction, and none of that's automated. You know, none of what's happening there is automated, and so that's our goal is to leverage, you know, use the bank's balance sheet or for our larger clients their own balance sheet um, with a platform that is Triumph Pay to be this kind of nexus of billing and payments and trucking where the carriers can just work with one platform, enter their bank account one time, but they'd be able to take quick pay from all the brokers um, on Triumph Pay. And it's it's really it's for carriers it's an it's an you know an amazing experience. So yeah, I mean I think you know when you when you were tackling it, you were tackling the fuel problem and that's something you know I, I is it very interesting to us? I mean, what do you see in terms of, of fuel and, and fuel payments as you look forward? I mean, will there still be plastic? Like, what, why haven't we moved to a fully virtual 
fuel fuel car world. I mean, I think I think eventually there will be some innovation around fuel card. I mean, ultimately, the the challenge in fuel is that you you have an oligopoly between the big truck stops, and so the big travel centers uh, control a lot of the market, and and therefore when you have that level of concentration, and then you have in the card business, the fleet card business, you have uh, basically a duopoly. So you have this sort of concentrated amount of control, and ultimately you need the travel centers or the truck stops to cooperate to support levels of innovation. And they have been innovative, uh, but you know the transaction is only one thing that they're uh, focused on. Then you have a large concentration in this sort of duopoly structure between WEX and Fleet Corps, which are also de-incentivized to think about return on capital to put a lot of money in technology when they own collectively uh, have have the bulk of the market. It's it's not something that either of those organizations are going to spend an outsized amount of money to go out and innovate. And it's difficult talking to a lot of venture capital investors that look at the fuel space. First of all, if they're interested in it, if they know about it and they become interested in it, they realize there's a lot of structural issues. You ultimately have to have the travel centers and the truck stops to want to uh, uh, work with these startups. And it's difficult because the truck stops aren't incented to, to, to really provide you know, a new entrant into the market. They, for them, they look at, okay, if you're gonna go really tackle this problem, it's gotta be in the small fleets, because the big fleets don't wanna change vendors, they don't wanna change integration, it's gotta be in the small fleets, but that's where all of our margin's at, in terms of gala, and so why would I dilute myself, why would I dilute my position by lowering the cost and really provide an incentive? So it's, it's, it's a problem that, until there is a structural change in the truck stop industry, uh, it's going to continue to be a difficult market for fuel. That's that's really interesting. It's really interesting how you've got a consolidated, um, you know, pay card business there with you know EFS and Comdata, and then you've got consolidation on the truck stops. Um, you know, that's that's so different than than where we operate, where you have such fragmentation um, in in the marketplace. So, um, yeah, I mean, fuel is an interesting area for us, more from the fuel advance. Side of things, you know, we, we're thinking a lot about fuel advances for small carriers, less about how we get into negotiating with with truck stops. Um, you know, that's that's an area that I think, as we look at like, you know, as we look at really accelerating cash flow for trucking companies, if we can start paying them this amount when they pick up, this amount when they deliver, this amount when it's finally fully invoiced and PO, you know, like if we can use technology and, and, and mobile applications and electronic bill of lading to allow us to get there faster. That's what's exciting to me is like, how can we accelerate getting cash in that, that carrier's pocket? Where he ultimately spends it or how he does it is, is less less important to us, you know, is, is from where we sit. We, you know, we feel more like a, a conduit more than, I guess, a, a bucket, you know, where we're collecting funds on a wallet or anything like that. So, um, yeah, it's Definitely interesting. So, Jordan, when we think about, I mean, you've made it, brought up an astounding fact that I didn't realize until you told me, and it's been some time since you told me this, that half of all transactions of every half of the loads that you guys are underwriting and uh, providing factoring services have some level of an exception, whether it's detention that's uh, prop, not properly charged or there's a dispute or a fuel surcharge issue. It's very hard to automate that flow. Can you talk a little bit more about what difficulties there are in trying to optimize those transactions? Yeah, and that's and that's in brokered freight, right? When you talk about you know carrier work with a broker, where you got a rate confirmation going out, 
and that you know saying that what I'm saying is the invoice amount is is oftentimes very different than than what was on the rate confirmation. You know, the biggest drivers of that are lumper fees and detention. Um, so lumper fees is is I think in order of difficulty to solve, they're both incredibly difficult to solve. The first is the easiest one to probably go get is lumper fees. Um, your problems you run into there is a lot of those lumpers are, again, it's, you can talk about fragmentation. There's, there's a few, there's like a, maybe one or two large lumper companies, but you know, getting them to accept a virtual payment method or getting them to accept a debit card payment method, you got to go out and win that when those accounts and, you know, you run into situations where some people don't want to be on the grid, um, some of these, these lumper companies. So in, in that one's probably a little bit more easy to get your arms around um, because you can use data. We can use data around, Hey, no carry, you know, carrier claims to have a lumper at this, um, at this um, constantly. Well, we've never seen one there in, in, in 8,000 8, loads. So like that doesn't seem right. Like we can use a little bit more of the data we see across all the brokers and all the carriers and the platform to triangulate, Hey, is this a real lumper or not? Detention's a whole nother, whole nother story, right? Because you got so much going on there. Carriers have different, the detention rates actually determined by the carrier in a lot of ways. And, you know, look, there's some give and take here, right? That there's some controversy around is it the broker setting or the carrier setting it. And then, you know, when they make a claim, they got to go get that approved by the shipper. So you got an email train, email chain going to the shipper to say it approved to come back. It just, it turns into um, that one's going to be the hardest one, I think, for people to solve. You know, the holy grail is that ELD helps us solve that with, you know, zones. But, you know, you're talking about integrating a lot of different sources of truth here to just resolve to how to pay a $50 detention fee. It's it's a heavy, heavy, heavy lift. And, I, you know, for us, we got to get to a certain scale in payments, 20, 30 billion before it makes sense for us to invest the time and effort to go try and automate those. Because even at the scale we're at now, you know, not to mention just, you know, the $100 million broker, it doesn't make sense to go invest the time to, to try and solve it. I think if someone does solve the detention problem, they become the default payment system for this industry. Uh, if it's solved on the 3PL side, there's a huge advantage in carrier relationships. Uh, if you're on the technology side, so I guess this message is out to all the founders out there that if you're looking for an opportunity to solve, those are two areas, detention being probably the one that would would benefit a lot of folks. But there's also game and shit. Are, are you are you willing to sell are you willing to sell <laughs> detentionninja.com? I, I do own detentionninja.com and one of the ideas, and so a lot of people don't know this, Jordan and I have some history, but a lot of people don't realize that uh, when Freightways was first started, before it became Freightways, we actually had a lot of different ideas. And one of the things that I wanted to go solve was detention and actually came up with this business plan uh, that is a payments element uh, called detentionninja.com. So Jordan, you're, you're right. That was something that I wanted to do was basically create a detention clearinghouse. We're not going to do it now but essentially create the industry standard contract and the industry standard terms for detention. And if someone could solve that, it's a massive opportunity because it, it helps create an honest uh, framework. But it strikes me also sort of deeper into the thought is that a lot of brokers may not want to solve it. And a lot of uh, uh, shippers, shippers and carriers may not want to solve it. I think the carriers are the ones that probably have the most to gain. The shippers have the most to lose. And there's a lot of game and shit that happens between those parties. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of people that unfortunately benefit from certain processes not being automated. And I think that slows down a lot of the automation that can happen inside of payments and transportation is there's certain entities that benefit when when things don't happen as efficiently and things get lost. There's margin in whenever billings get lost. And so, you know, it, it's 
it's going to be an uphill battle. The tension is going to be the hardest because you have so many sources of truth again between the broker, carrier, and shipper. Lumper fees, probably a little bit easier to solve, um, especially with some of the data we have around where we know that lumpers are being charged at these at these docks versus other, they're not at other docks. So, you know, we'll probably venture first into fuel advances and then lumper fees um, in that order. But, you know, again, we kind of got our head down. We're trying to win as many um, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three brokers we can in, in the industry right now. You've got a really good perspective on the market. Um, you guys, really two sides of your business. One is on the uh, payment side, which is what you lead up at Triumph Pay, and then the factoring side of the house, which does uh, cash flow acceleration. They're effectively ran as two separate units inside of uh, Triumph Bank Court. Um, but I wanted to get your ta- or thoughts on what the market looks like. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What is your sentiment uh, going out in the fourth quarter? So we haven't seen as much new entrance into the marketplace as we did in 2018. You know, that pace, that feverish pace of new entrance into the market um, hasn't hasn't surfaced yet. We feel like we got more people coming off the sidelines than we do new people coming into the market, which both create capacity, but it just doesn't feel like that feverish pace of new entrants or people coming off the sideline like it did in 2018. On um, the other side of the, of the equation, you know, it is a very t- it is a very tight margin environment for a lot of 3PLs and freight brokers. And you know, while it's your know, volumes are up, um, you know, a lot more a lot more freight is falling into the spot market. A lot more freight. I mean, I think across our um, carrier base, we're seeing you know a, a lot more you know a lot more volume from the same carriers than than, than we would expect just even you know two three months ago. So um, it's 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 really the beneficiaries right now are the carriers that are in the market that are there and are able to get on these loads and, and, and get into the spot market. I, you know, personally, we feel like this is a lot of the a lot of what's happening right now is disruption caused by um, dislocation in retail spend. Right. The consumer didn't get it hit as hard um, through coronavirus because of some of the federal federal stimulus money. And manufacturing basically shut down for a couple of months, and so inventories were at historical lows. I mean, you go to a, you go to any major retailer, you see out of stock. I mean, it's getting better, but that is, I think, what's driving a lot of the dislocation that we're seeing in in the, in the supply chain. That you know is really helping the spot market. And so, until you see kind of normalization of those levels, or you see enough new interest come at it, I, I mean, you know, this is going to extend for for a while. It's not going to it's not going to go into you know it's not going to be here for a year. But like you know, there's it's. Low, lower enough barrier entries to this market that the carriers will start to come in eventually. But you know, hopefully, we see it through. Ideally, you know, next couple of months. When was it in 2020? What month was it, or was there a period of time when you realized that the market was going to be strong? That we're out, of, in your opinion, out of the woods. That a lot of the sort of concerns that people had in the second quarter were probably uh, the rest of the year was going to end up well. Did you have a moment or a period of time? throughout the calendar where you guys could sort of take a breath and relax? March, April were terrible. June, end of June, July is when it really started to pick up for us. And we can have a lag sometimes because of where we sit and, and some of the aging that we have, but it really started to pick up in um, July, August, and then you know September was amazing. So it, Q3, uh, Q3, uh, Q3 really just built on itself once we got into it. And it's been an amazing quarter. Yeah, no, no signs of slowdown in Q4. I would at least, I can't imagine your data showing any any pause of this being peak. I've heard a lot of stories about peak being this being an earlier peak. Uh, peak, as some people have said, it started as early as October one. Other people say it's really Halloween. 
Do you have a perspective on when, I know that you guys, there's a, uh, because of the billing cycle, as you mentioned, there's a slight lag, but do you have a perspective on when you think peak's gonna look like? Uh, when do you yeah. think we'll see peak? Yeah, this cycle isn't seasonal, it's structural, right? You've got a structural issue with like a, a massive change in consumer spending and, and manufacturing and, and imports being basically stalled out for a couple months. So it's not a seasonal impact that's gonna drive it. I think it's structural. I think it's once you have enough new entrants coming to the market to stabilize what is that dislocation created by shifts in consumer spending in, in different areas, you know, buying, um, it, food retailers are experiencing growth like they've never experienced. I, I covered food retail companies at JP Morgan. Those guys never saw 7% year over year growth. Like that's insane for them. And so, you know, when you have that kind of dislocation in, in the normal course of, I, that to me is what's is driving. Until we get enough new entrants in the market or until inventories get back to a normalized level, I think the seasonal trends won't matter. And it'll be more focused on, hey, where, where inventory levels at relative to historical standards. And then, you know, has spending kind of normalized across the different categories. You know, that, that would be to me, as I look and say, that's the indicator that we're starting to come back to a normal market. And, you, and you're saying participants, you're specifically referring to trucks and trucking companies. Uh, is that correct? That's right, carriers, yeah, people bringing capacity. Um, both existing capacity coming off the sidelines, which happens more than people realize, and, and new entrants, people you know, getting into truck for the first time. So you're not seeing any signs of, you described 18, having a lot of new carriers that show up. You're not seeing that happen yet? We're seeing it, but not to the level that it was in 2018. Got it, and certainly, I mean, there's been a whole, as you mentioned, a sort of a complete shift in the economy and lifestyle. Do you think that's, yeah. you think this is sort of permanent or do you think that we're gonna at some point revert back to the way life was before? No, I mean, in terms for the supply chain, I mean like, you know, consumer behavior, I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't know if my wife will ever let me go out not wearing a mask. Like I, I gotta put my mask on as soon as I walk out of here, right? Um, so consumer be, you know, I think the supply chain will mold itself into how consumer behavior evolves over time, right? And And, you know, why, what why is the spot market doing so well? Why is the broker freight doing so well? It's because there's this dislocation. So that'll naturally cure itself over time and the supply chain will naturally, I think, evolve to become back to more of that stable environment. It, I don't think, you know, the, the idea that we're not going to concerts or not going to restaurants or buying from food retail will be a long-term, hey, the spot market will always be this big of a, a percentage of for hire transportation. No, I think, I mean, shippers will eventually evolve Time, you know, time will actually, you know, they'll be able to be, have more predictability and you know, be able to plan better uh, for their inventory levels. And I think that'll kind of naturally stabilize what's in the spot market now will slowly shift back over to the contract side. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of shippers are really, uh, I think, trying to scramble for rate increases. We've heard some from some large asset carriers that they've been offered double digit rate increases, un basically uh, unsolicited, is that shippers have said, make sure that I have access to capacity and options, don't leave me behind, and I'm, I, I know that you're gonna ask for a rate increase, so here it is. Um, it's interesting, I, we, we get a, a number of requests, sometimes on social media, other times in emails, where um, sometimes they're large companies, sometimes they're small, uh, but it seems like some of the mid-sized companies don't know, and this is both on the, uh, more so on the asset side, but they don't know whether they should ask for those out-of-cycle rate increases. And I, I remind them that this is, I don't think anyone could have seen COVID. This is sort of an exceptional environment. And I don't think uh, carriers should uh, necessarily, uh, I think they do have leverage and they should take advantage of the Absolutely. opportunity to sit down with their shippers. But their Absolutely. costs have increased. I mean, other than just volume, Absolutely. their costs have increased. And, and, Driver you know, that's, pay is up. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's a market economy. 
Yeah, go it, ahead. It's, I mean, this is a commodity. People get offended when you call trucking a commodity, but it is a commodity with yeah. a lot of volatility. Now, it's a lot of you know uh, variability in that commodity, but at the end of the day, it's a commodity. It should be priced at the market. Carriers should have the opportunity to recoup some of their investments that they made. They didn't get that last year. Frankly, carriers had to actually, in many cases, lower their rates to secure freight. And now the pendulum has swung. Yeah, the shoes on the other foot. I mean, you know, what the biggest the biggest crime against vocabulary is what we call the contract market in trucking. I mean, it's not contract, right? I mean, it's just like I remember the first time I got in, someone explained to me, I was like, that doesn't make wait. They can reject it, but like I thought you said, it was con- you know it's not. And so like you know, the, I think we're all profit maximizing firms, and so you need to maximize profit for your firm, obviously with some view to to relationship and customer reputation. But you know, uh, you you've got to when your costs are increasing, when your driver pay is increasing, I think it's an, it's is the time to ask for this is the time to ask for rate increases, not the time to buy new trucks, right? Like I think that message should be better, and I think carriers are getting it more um, because. You know, it's like the stock market. You buy high, sell low. Like that's not going to end well for you. And and so this is a high rate environment. You shouldn't be putting new trucks on the on the road. You should be harvesting the cash flow you can off your existing uh, asset base. And then you know when the market tanks and when things are bad, that's when you invest and try and get assets and, and build market share um, against your competitors. So, you know, like you said, it is a perfectly competitive market. You have low barriers to entry, a commodity product, easy switching costs, low exit barriers. This market will always revert back to the long term average cost. Um, if you know, and, and so you're gonna you're gonna see rates come back down. There's just no way that it just ha- it's just gonna happen. Like I, I, I hate to break anybody's you know long term um, hopes that that we live in a you know two three dollar drive in my uh, drive my, per mile drive in rate. Like it's just not gonna happen. But Jordan, every every cycle, and I'm you know I've literally grew up in this business. I'm 41 years old, so I've seen 40 years of deregulated. I was born when deregulated trucking happened, so I've heard this. But every single cycle. My dad and uh, and his buddies that were at you know big trucking companies would always say, "Oh, this is this is a long-term trend. We we have all the leverage. We're going to maintain the leverage. Eventually, the pendulum will swing. It's definitely not uh, going to be permanent. But I do think that this cycle could go on longer than past cycles for the reasons you mentioned. We're not seeing new entrants." Um, ultimately, the capacity constraint isn't the number of trucks. A lot of people like to look at the number of trucks as sort of a proxy for capacity. It's drivers. And we're not seeing DMVs. Uh, you know, DMVs were closed for a couple of months. A lot of carriers pulled advertising for trucker, for new drivers to enter the industry during the summer because they basically had a glut of drivers. And I think everyone looked at the unemployment number and said, oh, we have this huge unemployment number, therefore we don't have to work hard for drivers. And then August came and boom, everything changed. Yeah, and I think I think what's what's interesting about, you know, the the you look at 18, 19, 20, massive swings in rates, right? And and I would love to talk to Max or you about like, you know, historically, uh, have you seen that? I mean, I was with uh, Matt Perry from Warner and he was talking about this. He brought it up. He's like, do we feel like the volatility's you know, there's more volatility now in freight rates than there was 10, 20 years ago. And, you know, it's it's really interesting. And, and, and I don't know necessarily what is driving that, like the volatility. I mean, it's, it's to your point, I don't think it's long term. Right. But why do we keep having these really volatile swings? And, and, and some of it, in, in my opinion, is that you've got an administration that, that pushes, you know, tariffs and things like that cause some real structural movements in freight in, in 18, then, you know, fed into 19. Um, I think that was some of it, but it's also you got freight brokers and and others providing greater, easier access to freight, right? You know, it's it's easier now than ever to go buy a truck 
get on a low board, get a load, you know, do get access to capital through people like us. And I think it just it just continues to lowers the the barriers to entry for for new interest. I think that you know allows these these rates to move move faster than they have in the past. I think just like anything, technology is just accelerating the pace at which change happens. When we were uh, looking at futures markets, I did a lot of uh, research and read up and talked to a lot of people about market uh, fundamentals. And what's interesting about it is as you get more information and the information flows faster, so whether it's rate indexes that you would see with the load boards or companies like us that you know run a news channel or uh, brokers are having information, just basically as the market gets more visibility and transparency, volatility actually increases versus decreases, is that you have information flowing so much faster than it's ever been uh, out there that it's actually increasing that volatile cycle that you see. And it's irreversible. And, and it's every marketplace that's ever had any level of liquidity is seen. And even in Amazon's marketplace, uh, you know, they run an, basically a reverse auction on their systems. As they get more, as a product gets more and more companies, there's more and more volatility on it. My, my uh, futures and derivatives professor from college would probably uh, <laughs> fail proud me of you. for saying this. But yeah, no, proud, oh, no, not proud no, of you. No, I mean, yeah, I, yeah no, he, I mean, you know, they, they have a more theoretical mindset about how these I completely agree, man. Like, I feel like today in today's financial markets and today's the freight market that things just happen faster and news is digested more quickly, and then we move on to the next thing. But we react more uh, with more, you know, more speed to as it flows. And people like you, I mean, honestly, freight waves. Um, you guys brought a new level of transparency to the marketplace with the tender rejection. Um, you know, I mean, that was when I talk to people about freight waves. I say, you know, the most brilliant thing Craig did was this: the tender rejections, having the knowledge of what that was, and I mean. You're now talking about leading indicator that was never surfaced to the marketplace. Now this leading indicator is there, and you're providing that to carriers of all sizes being able to move their fleets to optimize on what the market looks like. I mean that that didn't exist, right? And so you know that's again, what's that going to do? It's going to push to get a faster equilibrium and move things faster. I mean, I think I think you're spot on. I think you're part of the problem. Well, maybe so. And now, in fairness, rest in peace. I'd love to take credit for the Tinder Rejection Index, but rest in peace. Ben Murphy, that was really his baby. Really? Yeah, so he, oh. he, he deserves credit for that, um, for better or worse of what you say. But, uh, but another thing is, is as you get digitization, that creates, as you mentioned, it's vi you know, the, in the old days when, when I was in freight in the you know, early 2000s, it was a really volatile market, uh, but it, the cycles were much longer took years of, uh, to sort of play out, but you would have this increase in 2000, 2004, and then uh, sort of six and to eight was sort of a crash in the market. We're seeing these sort of super cycles play out, which is probably due to more information, but there's also, I think, as you mentioned, the changing cost between, uh, you know, carriers can move between platforms, whether it's a load board or a digital broker or a shipper, the information just makes it so easy. And unfortunately, these things, these trends are, are not reversible. They're going to continue. Volatility is going to be a factor. Um, and it, you just have to live with it. And there's, you know, Freightways goes off the air tomorrow, which we don't plan on it. But if it did, that volatility is still going to be there. Someone will take our spot uh, and, and so forth. Can't stop the change. You better just get it, you know, you better adapt best you can and evolve with it. Absolutely. It's, it's just the way it is, but um, certainly, you know, an interesting conversation. Well, Jordan, really appreciate you coming back. This is your third time, I think, in Fuller Speed Ed. Second, uh, second time. I guess we, I did so good both times. You thought I was here. First, <laughs> it was but, so good. Yeah. But <laughs> I think you're going to be the Steve Martin of uh, the Fuller Speed Ahead show. So really appreciate it. I got to ask you one more prediction. Oh, Does, man. This is a two-part prediction, Jordan. 
Does Baylor football uh, basically complete its schedule, A, and then B, does it, is it a winning season? Uh, yes and yes. All right. Well, they heard it, hey, Jordan. Man, sick and Bears. All right. Hey, sick brother, and Bears. We got it this year. I don't know. I, I don't have a ton of confidence. I really watched us. It was pretty brutal. It's not about confidence. We're Bears. We're Baylor Bears. We're always optimists and always disappointed. So, like, talk you about know, some, just got to be optimistic. Jordan, talk about some volatility in a football team. Like, <laughs> oh, like yeah. Like, Baylor football is, is by far the most vol, probably the most volatile football team of, in all of college fo- football. Yeah, it's like so. a penny stock. You never know what it's going to do. <laughs> That's fat. Well, Jordan, appreciate you coming on. Four Speed Ahead, we'll have you back. Uh, really appreciate it. And you can tune in to Fuller Speed Ahead. You can get us on Freightways TV. Be sure to download the Freightways TV app on the Apple Store, on Roku devices. Uh, and tune in to our virtual summits that we have for the rest of the year.